This fall, we've been looking at the prophet Jeremiah, one of the greatest of Israel's prophets, and we've been looking at his life story. And today, we're going to pick up the story um, when Jeremiah's been on the job for about 22 years. At the very beginning, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, the nation had experienced a revival. A revival is just a churchy word the Bible uses to describe a time when people leave their bad habits behind, when they return and reconnect to God, uh, leave their rebellious ways behind, and live the way God wants them to live. But it didn't last long, and not long after uh, Josiah, the king who was uh, around then, the good king, was gone, um, his second son, Jehoiakim, became king. And this man couldn't have been more different from Josiah. The most charitable way to describe Jehoiakim is that he was stubborn. Unlike his father, Josiah, Jehoiakim had very little interest in, in God, in a relationship with God. His primary interest was in enlarging the temple, um, the palace that he had, excuse me, the, the palace, not the temple. And he embarked on a whole process of expansion and renovation, and we're told in chapter 22 that he used slave labor, forced labor, to do that. Jeremiah, ever the cranky prophet, wasn't impressed. And so when Jehoiakim said in chapter 22, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms, Jeremiah added sarcastically, does it make you any more a king to have more and more cedar? And then he blasted him, said, your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain, on shedding innocent blood, and on oppression and extortion. In about the year 605 B.C., God sent word to Jeremiah that he had a job for him, and the job was to write down everything that he had been saying for about 22 years to the people. And here's how the story begins in Jeremiah chapter 36, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. If you want to follow along in one of the Bibles right in front of you, you can on page 1205, page 1205, um, but the words of most of what I'll read will also be on the screen. So here's how he begins. It says, In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. It says, Take a scroll and write on it all the words I've spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster, excuse me, every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they will each turn from their wicked ways. Then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. Now, we're going to talk more about something next week that uh, appears here, and that is um, the idea of judgment, a message that Jeremiah consistently brought. It sounds harsh, and it is, but the motive behind it, and you can see it here in the text, is God's desire that the people would hear the warning, that they would change their ways, and they would avoid it. His longing was that they re could repent, and he would forgive them. And frankly, that's the goal of every biblical writer. And the story of the Bible is that we've all been created in love, um, created by God uh, in his image, but that we've been damaged by evil, not just the evil that others do, but also our own sin and rebellion. And then we've been rescued by God, something that Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, and then restored for good, created for good works that we are to do until Jesus returns. So the goal there, here, and elsewhere in the Bible, is not just to remind us of justice, but to also tell us of God's love, his mercy, and his forgiveness so that we can be a part of God's story for all of eternity. Now, Jeremiah took up this job of recording what had been said all those years with a friend named Baruch, Baruch who functioned as a scribe, and so while Jeremiah dictated, Baruch wrote. And you may be wondering, you mean this guy's been speaking for 22 years and he's had no script, no notes, nothing? Well, um, in those days, Jeremiah lived in a time that was literate, but not necessarily a written-down literate. They had an oral culture. They were great at memorizing and remembering things accurately. 
And it really was only when they wanted to pass things on to a future generation that they would get around to writing things down. So we're indebted to Baruch for writing down the words of Jeremiah, although in the end, really, God deserves credit both for the inspiration of the words that Jeremiah spoke as well as for prompting the two of them to get to work. The words, by the way, are both Jeremiah's, his personality comes through, and God's, because the Bible is a divinely inspired document expressed through human authors. It makes it really unique. In all of human history, it's a unique document. The work that Jeremiah and Baruch did wasn't easy. In fact, we know it took them about nine months to complete this task, which makes what comes later in the story even more significant. Once they were finished, Jeremiah told Baruch to go to the temple and read what he had written to the people. So in verse 7, it says that his hope was perhaps they will bring their petition before the Lord and will each turn from their wicked ways for the anger and wrath pronounced against the people by the Lord are great. So Baruch went to the temple, he read, and when he was finished, it says they were deeply moved. Now one of King Jehoiakim's officials happened to listen in that day, realized the importance of what he had heard, So he arranged to have Baruch come and do a private reading for some of the officials in the palace. Apparently there were two different groups, and one group was interested in hearing what he had to say. Verse 16, it tells us when he finished reading, they looked at each other in fear and said to Baruch, we must report all these words to the king. And then they began to brainstorm how they would do that, and they had a problem. Uh, They knew the king needed to hear, at least they believed the king needed to hear what Jeremiah had to say, but they also knew that it was likely to make him angry. So what they conceived was the idea that they needed to make sure that Jeremiah and Baruch were safe. So they said, why don't you guys go off and hide? Don't tell us where you are, or otherwise we'll be, um, you know, potentially threatened to, uh, to, to reveal you. And then they recruited some scribe, perhaps uh, unawares of what he was going to read, to read this script, this scroll to the king. You have to wonder why these particular officials were so eager that the king hear it. What I think is that Jeremiah's message um, rang true to them. They saw what was about to happen. They saw Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians coming. They knew that they were close to, uh, to destroying them. And so they wondered if perhaps what Jeremiah wrote would persuade the king to abandon what was a destructive foreign national policy um, and to avoid being destroyed by the Babylonians because Jeremiah's suggestion was they just go ahead and and surrender to the Babylonians, and therefore avoid the destruction of the city. But you have to wonder how confident they were that this approach would work out. But they must have thought, well, it can't hurt. If anything can persuade the king, maybe Jeremiah's scroll will. So it says they went to the king, and in verse 22 of chapter 36, it says it was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in a fire pot in front of him. And then the aide they'd recruited to read cleared his throat and began to read. Verse 23, it says, when he had read three or four columns of the scroll, by the way, these scrolls unrolled, and so you'd have columns that were sewn together and, um, and written on. It says, when he had uh, read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. So every time he read a few columns, the king would take his knife, slash it, and he'd throw it in the fire. The king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. Now, there's one set of aides who are urging the king to listen, and another set of aides who are just like the king. They're ignoring everything that he's saying. No, no emotion on their faces, nothing like the fear that the others had when they heard Baruch read earlier. And the king kept it up, column by column, 
cutting off a few columns, tossing them into the fire. And eventually, the entire scroll was gone, nearly a year's worth of of work up in smoke. And then the king ordered Jeremiah imprisoned, but he couldn't find him, so Jeremiah was still free. By the way, Jehoiakim here knew what he was doing. He wasn't just burning up a few yards of papyrus so he could stay warm. He knew he was rejecting the message that God had for him. This was not an impulsive response. He didn't just get angry in the moment and accidentally toss the scroll into the fire. This was a deliberate act of defiance against God. And it's not hard at all to compare his response at hearing the scroll read to that of his father Josiah, who years earlier in 2 Kings 22 had heard the word of the Lord, wept, tore his robes, and repented, and then arranged so the rest of the people in the nation could hear what he had heard. And because of his response, the nation was spared. Jehoiakim, in contrast, tears up the book, not his robes. He ridicules God's word rather than repent. And so God says, beginning in verse 29, You burned that scroll, therefore this is what the Lord says. He will have no one to sit on the throne. In other words, no descendant of Jehoiakim's will sit on the throne. His body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and the frost by night. Now, I know that this kind of talk, this kind of talk of judgment troubles many of you. It troubles me at times as well. We're going to talk again more about judgment next week. But we need to acknowledge that there are some people in the world who simply do not want the good things that God offers. And God cannot let evil and injustice go on forever. And so there is a time of accounting. In a book called The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis says this, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. And all that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and consistently desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find, and those who knock, it is opened. Well, the story of Jehoiakim, at least this particular part of the story of Jehoiakim, ends with God telling Jeremiah to take another scroll, write on it all the words that were on the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, burned up. So Jeremiah took the scroll and gave it to the scribe Baruch. And as Jeremiah dictated, Baruch wrote on it all of the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to it. One of the benefits of having that first scroll burned is the one that we have, which has probably been edited into the version we have in our Bibles, is longer than the first one. So we get more of Jeremiah. Now the Bible as we know it was coming into existence at the time when Jeremiah was living. Eventually many others did what Jeremiah and Baruch did. They wrote and edited letters and stories and poems that have been preserved for us in the 66 inspired books of the Bible that we have today. And the question for each one of us is how we will respond to what we have so readily available in our Bibles. Do we receive what we've been given in the way that Josiah did, with reverence and obedience, knowing that in it we have the very words of God? Or will we reject it, dismissing it as his son Jehoiakim did, to his everlasting disgrace? The inspired word of God cannot be dismissed. It demands a personal response because in the Bible we have revealed to us the mysteries of God and it uncovers the secrets of our hearts. We're not always going to agree with it, but we need to submit to it. Let it shape us because God is wiser than we are. His word reveals reality, exposes our selfishness, and points us in the way of life. Well, that's a little bit about this stubborn king. But what about Jeremiah? Well, let me just uh, use a word to say that Jeremiah is the persistent prophet. And what I want to do now is compare Jeremiah to another king, King Zedekiah, 
who followed Jehoiakim, and a little bit about their relationship that reveals the character qualities, particularly that Jeremiah himself has. Jeremiah was a persistent person, even when pressured. For years, he told the people what God asked of him. Time and time again, he spoke up. He never quit. From early morning to late night, he did what God asked of him. And he did so tirelessly, even when no one would listen. He suffered abuse. He was mocked. He was rejected. He was imprisoned. He experienced times of discouragement and depression and despair. He thought of quitting often. But he kept at it, even though every day he faced indifference, if not outright hostility. Yet every day he got up, first of all to meet God, and then to do what God asked of him. Now, if we're honest, and I have to be honest along with you, I'm not nearly as persistent as Jeremiah was. I can be erratic, I can be inconsistent, and maybe that's true of you as well. Sometimes I think we struggle with being faithful to what we know we ought to be doing. We struggle not to cave in to public opinion or to give in to what's fashionable at the moment rather than what God asks of us. In part, we do that because we haven't made a relationship with God a priority. One of the things that's basic to a life with God is to set aside time to spend with Him, to separate from the crowd, to get alone and gain perspective that can shape our lives in the ways that God would have for us. What pleases God most is when we faithfully return to the same tasks over and over again, the things that we know He wants us to do, persistently doing what He asks, not being distracted or diverted from what God would have for us. Zedekiah was Jehoiakim's half-brother and became king after Jehoiakim died, although there's a, another king, one of Jehoiakim's uh, sons, who became king for just about three and a half months. Um, Zedekiah would be the last king of Israel, or excuse me, of Judah, before the Babylonians destroyed the nation. So there are a number of stories about Zedekiah scattered throughout the book of Jeremiah. I've told you before that this book is not written chronologically. Things get mixed up. But at the same time, what we have, at least in a couple of chapters in the section we're looking at today, is two incidents that illustrate the character or differences in character between Jeremiah and Zedekiah. And we see Jeremiah's illustrate, his character illustrated in these stories. Zedekiah was a mixed bag. Um, unlike his, uh, his half-brother Jehoiakim, uh, he had some good qualities, although he was a weak and vacillating personality. He respected Jeremiah, and at times he even went to him for advice to hear from him. But like other kings, he didn't do what Jeremiah told him to do. He was afraid of Israel's enemy, and rather than stand up to them, he tried to placate them, first the Egyptians, then the Babylonians. In the end, he served as a puppet king to both kings at different times. Zedekiah had no will of his own. He was easily influenced by other powerful men, and probably women as well, inside and outside the nation. By contrast, Jeremiah was so shaped by God that no one else could influence him. I want to give you an example from chapter 34. So if you're in the Bible, you can flip back a couple of chapters to chapter 34. And I want to talk about something that Zedekiah did that um, illustrates uh, Jeremiah's persistence and Zedekiah's inconsistency. What he did first was something that Jeremiah very much approved of. You'll see the words on the screen, but what happened here is that all the slave owners in Israel, um, Zedekiah encouraged them to release their slaves. So this is kind of an ancient version of the Emancipation Proclamation. Now just a little background here, because slavery, at least in this time, was a little different than the kind of chattel slavery we're familiar with in American history. What had happened was uh, Moses allowed those who found themselves destitute. So in the law that Moses gave some 800 years earlier, he'd allowed someone who found themselves in difficulty 
to sell themselves to someone else who would promise to provide for them and would benefit from their labor. However, there was a provision, and that was that anyone who found themselves in that situation and decided to become someone else's slave would only have to do so for a period of six years, and then they would be released. And all of Israel's law codes had these sorts of things built into them to prevent economic and personal indebtedness that would last for indefinitely. In fact, they had another one that applied to land. You could sell land and, uh, uh, if you got into debt, um, but you were able to get the land back every 50 years, a year of jubilee. So the idea was that someone could fall on hard times and need help, and this indentured servitude was a way of helping support these folks in those circumstances, a way of helping them to get a fresh start in a few years, free of obligation, and have sufficient uh, provisions to begin over again, because part of the provision was they were to be given something at the end of this, this, this time of servitude. However, over time, wealthy slave owners simply ignored this provision, this freedom, after six years. But Zedekiah, in the middle of all of this calamity with the, the Babylonians, decided to reenact the, the practice. And that's what Jeremiah is happy about. However, it didn't last long because soon he was persuaded, probably by some of the wealthy slave owners, to rescind the order and the slave owners rounded up the slaves and enslaved them again. And Jeremiah was livid. Verse 14, he says, Your ancestors, however, did not listen to me or pay attention to me. He's talking about God. Recently you repented and did what is right in my sight. Each of you proclaimed freedom to your own people. You even made a covenant before me in the house that bears my name. So they went into the temple and signed with great ceremony some agreement. But now, he says, you have turned around and profaned my name. Each of you has taken back the male and female slaves you had set free to go where they wished. You have forced them to become your slaves again. Now, we can only speculate, but probably pretty accurately speculate why they did this, and it was for economic reasons. They may have released them in part because as the Babylonians were laying siege to the city, they thought, oh, we'll have to provide for these slaves. We have to feed them. So if we release them, they're on their own, which may have not been the best of circumstances. But now that the Babylonians have left and have gone south to meet the Egyptians, they think, hey, we need these guys back. And so making money became more important to them than treating a human being with dignity and respect. It was a cold, callous greed that led them to go back on their word. And it was then that Jeremiah told them their, his judgment, God's judgment against them for this infraction. Verse 17, it says, This is what the Lord says. You've not obeyed me. You have not proclaimed freedom to your own people. So now I proclaim, and you can get some sarcasm here, I proclaim freedom for you, declares the Lord. Freedom to fall by the sword, plague, and famine. Notice that he adds this in verse 17. He says, you've not obeyed me. You have not proclaimed freedom for your own people. Some earlier translations have that phrase, own people, uh, sometimes translated as brothers and neighbors. What Jeremiah is reminding them of is the close ties that they have to the very people that they're enslaving, people that are like family to them. Now, if you think Jeremiah was upset by all of this, you can just imagine the anger and disappointment and sense of betrayal that the slaves themselves felt. Now, the second story about Jeremiah's persistence and Zedekiah's complete lack of persistence comes in a story that bridges two chapters, chapters 37 and 38. So, again, the book's a little out of order, but this story follows uh, the one in chapter 34. Now, I will tell you that there are two different stories in chapters 37 and 38, and some scholars believe it's talking about the same incident just from a different perspective. So I'm actually going to conflate these a little bit 
Um, but you'll see that the themes are the same, even if these stories are somewhat different. But it, tells, it gives a window into Zedekiah and Jeremiah's relationship and their character. At the beginning of chapter 37, in verse 3, Zedekiah asks uh, Jeremiah for a favor. He says, please pray to the, Lord, or to, to the Lord our God for us. And it's interesting that he would ask for Jeremiah's prayers. Now, when he does this, comes at a time when the Babylonians have left the siege that they've created around the city. Because the Egyptians are marching north, they go off to meet them. They don't actually end up in battle because eventually the Egyptians see the Babylonians coming and they turn and go back to Egypt. But that's the point at time in history when this has happened. So the people in Jerusalem are relieved for once after a period of time. They're free to get up and move about, to bring resources into the city. Um, The disaster that looked like it was coming has been uh, averted. And so for a brief moment, things look brighter. So Zedekiah's request for prayer is that this reprieve might be permanent. He wants Jeremiah to pray that the Babylonians will just go away forever. But Jeremiah told them not to get too excited. It's it's too late, he says. Disaster's on the way. So in verses 7 to 9, it says, Tell the king of Judah that Pharaoh's army, which has marched out to support you, will go back to its own land in Egypt. So what they think is that Pharaoh's coming, the Egyptians are coming to help bail them out, but they're not. Then the Babylonians will return and attack this city and will capture it and burn it down. This is what the Lord says. Do not deceive yourselves thinking the Babylonians will surely leave us. They will not. So when this siege is lifted, what Jeremiah then does himself personally in verses 11 and 12 is he decides to leave the city to go to visit a piece of property that he's purchased from a cousin. We we talked about that story last week. So he wants to go see the land he's purchased. But the sentries at the gate are suspicious. Because Jeremiah's been telling the people to go ahead and surrender to the Babylonians, they think he's on the Babylonian side. So they accuse him of deserting to join the enemy. And plus, at the beginning of chapter 38 in verse 4, they say that he was demoralizing the the troops with his constant negative news. So the fact that he was telling them what to do in relationship to the Babylonians, they said was discouraging the troops. So they beat him and had him imprisoned. So in chapter 38, verse 6, it describes this. It says, They took Jeremiah and they put him in the cistern, which was in the courtyard of the guard. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud. And Jeremiah sank down into the mud. Every once in a while today, you'll hear someone say, I am or somebody else is speaking truth to power. Now, most of the time today, it's just somebody ranting on Facebook or Twitter and all their friends agree with them, so it's kind of an echo chamber. Um, But Jeremiah was persistently speaking truth to everyone, people in power, people not in power, regardless of what it cost him. And here it cost him, well, his freedom. Jeremiah, it says, sank down into the mud. Now, just so you get a picture for what this is actually like, that may sound kind of benign punishment, but in reality, it's pretty severe. Uh, Mud is maybe a polite word for this sticky, slimy, thick, infested ooze that settled in the bottom of this cistern. It was impossible to lie down or to sleep. He was without food or water, and so he faced the horror of a slow death by dehydration and starvation and even drowning. And then we're told the story of an ordinary man who does something quite extraordinary, someone that I will just call an unsung hero, and his name is Ebed-Melech. So let me just read the story, and then we can describe some of the details. So Jeremiah is in this dark hole facing almost certain death, but it says in verse 7, But Ebed-Melech, a Cushite, an official in the royal palace, 
heard that they had put Jeremiah in the cistern. While the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Ebed-Melech went out of the palace and said to him, My lord the king, these men have acted wickedly in all they've done to Jeremiah the prophet. They've thrown him into a cistern where he will starve to death where there is no longer any bread, when there is no longer any bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Cushite, Take 30 men from here with you and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to a room under the treasury in the palace. He took some old rags and worn out clothes from there and let them down with robes to Jeremiah in the cistern. Ebed-Melech the Cushite said to Jeremiah, Put these old rags and worn out clothes under your arms to pad the ropes. Jeremiah did so. And they pulled him up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. Now, if we're honest, virtually all of us here today are ordinary people. And I know that may be offensive to some of you, so one or two of you are probably extraordinary. Um, But the rest of us are not. We're not famous. Um, After we're gone, few outside our close friends and family will even remember us, will soon be forgotten. Now, let me just, don't get this wrong, because I'm not saying that to deflate you. The clear message of the Bible is that even though, humanly speaking, what I just said is true, that in God's eyes, each one of us is special. God created us. We have great dignity and worth, and he loves each one of us dearly. Yet, in this world, we are fairly ordinary. What's encouraging is to know that God can use ordinary people just like us. And it's in this story that we find out about one very ordinary guy who did something extraordinarily courageous. Ebed-Melech was from Cush. Now, other translations, earlier translations, will translate that as Ethiopia. So it's an area in Africa, roughly where Ethiopia is today. He wasn't a Jew, um, but he had appeared to end up in Israel for one reason or another and had learned to love God, love him better than most of those who were around him. Now, ethnically, he's separated, which creates a barrier for him. And he was also a eunuch, um, and most likely a slave who worked in the king's household. By the way, for eunuchs, um, one of the realities of the Jewish law was that because of his physical disability, he could not worship in the temple. So even though he loved and trusted and served God, he could not go into the temple. But this story shows how his character comes through nonetheless, by his actions. Clearly, he was a righteous man because he knew Jeremiah was a prophet sent by God. And he knew that he couldn't just stand by and let Jeremiah die. So he was courageous. He's a slave. He goes directly to the king. He confronts him. He points out the evil thing that the other officials have conspired to do. So you have to put yourself in Ebed-Melech's shoes just for a moment. Because he knows what the right thing to do is. And going to the king who has the power to end your life or at least throw you into the cistern with Jeremiah must have been terrifying. But he does. He doesn't capitulate He goes ahead and goes to the king, asking him to help out. By now, Jeremiah was so weak that to get out was impossible. He couldn't just drop a rope and he'd climb up. So Ebed-Melech rigs up a harness out of ropes, takes some rags that he found in the temple, puts Jeremiah, um, he throws them down to Jeremiah, tells him to put them under his armpits, and they pull him out of the hole. If Ebed-Melech didn't do what he had done here, Jeremiah's career would have been over. The last 18 years of his public life would have been over. So Ebed-Melech, virtually a nobody, did something that was magnificent. Well, what we've done today is string together uh, several stories over about five chapters of the Bible. That's a long section, so we've had a lot to work our way through. But each week of this series, what we've done in the end is talk about how do we live this out? 
how do we live out the things that we've learned? So we'll have less time today to talk about that because of the length of the stories. But I do think that there are some important parallels between the world that Jeremiah lived in and the world that we lived in. Now, our country isn't under attack by a foreign army, a powerful foreign military, although there are those living around the world who find themselves in exactly those kinds of circumstances. But as for stubborn kings, people in power who callously dismiss the wisdom God has for us, they are everywhere. They're in business, in politics, in education, in all sorts of places. And there are weak, vacillating personalities like Zedekiah. We all know people like that, either personally or indirectly. But all's not lost, because even today we have our versions of the Jeremiahs, people who tenaciously and persistently live righteous, godly lives, no matter what the cost. They are our heroes, people like Billy Grahams and Martin Luther Kings and Mother Teresas of our world. Now, few of us are going to have the sort of impact that those sort of larger-than-life personalities have. But maybe, just maybe, we can be an Ebed Melech, an ordinary man or woman who does something extraordinary in the moment. Someone who sees a need and meets that need, or sees injustice and speaks out against it. What God asks of us may not be easy, but we can make a difference both now and for eternity. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot here in these stories, um, but we are impressed uh, with this persistent prophet, Jeremiah, who continued to speak out for you, to stand up for the things that you value um, against incredible odds and forces. Father, may we not be stubborn like King Jedekiah. May we receive the word that you have for us with openness and willingness, submitting ourselves to it. May we not be vacillating people like Zedekiah was. And rather, may we um, take a cue from Jeremiah's life and persistently pursue you. And then, Father, if we're given opportunity, may we be like Ebed-Melech, people who do what is right, regardless of whether it's easy. We pray these things in Jesus' name.